Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, the podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really, really appreciate it. Make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share these episodes so everyone can know what's going on at Captain Hunter's Podcast. If you are looking to take a promotional examination, make sure that you hit me up, cptlhunter at gmail.com or hunterpoliceconsulting at gmail.com. Either one of those, if you're looking to take a promotional exam, if you're looking for a diversity and inclusion instructor, um, if you're looking for a life coach, uh, just a number of services I offer, make sure you head over to huntapolicetraining.com in order to check out the website and see what we got going on over there. Um, So in the meantime, we are going to get right into the episode with Miss Sharla Stevens. I was so pleased to have Miss Sharla Stevens on. So we did a live episode, so this will be uh, the recording of the live episode that we did. Uh, in which Miss Charlotte Stevens came on. She is the owner of Healing Racism in Schools, LLC. We recorded this, uh, I think, back in uh, April or May. Um, but with schools starting up, um, I think it's really uh, important to talk about this again, uh, particularly if uh, students are going back to class uh, concerning uh, and considering COVID and things along those lines. Uh, lines. So um, Miss Charlotte Stevens, she's going to tell us about herself. She's out there in the Cali- California area, I believe. And uh, she goes all around the country uh, talking about uh, how to heal racism in schools in the, some of the unintentional and sometimes intentional uh, uh, words, uh, actions, deeds that come out of uh, administrators' mouths, teachers' mouths, uh, their actions um, relating to student, dealing with students of color. So Ms. Charlotte Stevens helps individuals go uh, understand their words, understand what's going on, and just try to heal the racism and the divides that go on in so many different communities. I was really, really pleased with her coming on. She has her own podcast, uh, which we'll talk about, we'll get into, and I really, really appreciate her coming on. We had a lively discussion and debate, um, and I, I really, really appreciate her once again for coming on. I'd like to have her back on the show uh, at some point in some time. So. Without uh, further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is the episode with, with Miss Charlotte Stevens. National Teacher of the Year before, so I had her come on. So I, 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 I like to talk about a range of different things. You know, let, let's get our finances together. Let's open up businesses. I've had entrepreneurs come on nice. just to okay. talk about a lot of things that have to do with the com- community because. Mm-hmm. Uh, police can't always, you know, we always want the police to change. And there's some things, obviously, I think that they should change. Mm-hmm. But the other part of that is the community has to do better, right? I'm bridging the divide. So the yeah. police got to take a couple steps and the community has to take a couple steps. Well, and there's right? places and, where the community could step up that, you know, we don't have to have police doing every, all these things that the community could be doing. So I understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So if we had the, if, if we had more people doing these things in the community, then the police wouldn't have to be called and, and their resources would not be so stretched thin and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 the focus of what I'm doing, the work that I'm doing and uh, the focus of the podcast. So thank um, you. Forgive well, me. No, no. no. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We can still be friends. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so Tr- Tracy's here. And I'm, I'm assuming more people will come on. So I don't want to uh, belabor the time here. So thank you so much to uh, my new good friend, Charlotte Stevens, <laughs> and the ancestors, Master of ED there. I, I really, really appreciate you coming on Captain Hunter's podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Captain Hunter. Glad to be here. All right. You can call me Lawrence. It's okay. Oh, thank you. Huh? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I try to make myself sound more important than I really am. You know, so well, it's, it's <laughs> the captain, you know? Well, listen, it's up to you. It's, it's up to right. you. Um, so please just tell, tell the audience uh, just a little bit about yourself. So my name is Charlotte Stevens and the ancestors. And I include the ancestors because so often they're discounted and forgotten. And it's very important that I carry them with me. They're also a motivating factor in the work that I do. So I'm an educator. I'm an, um, I come from education and I am an anti-racist educator for school leaders. Um, so that's my passion. And I get a lot of my, my commitment from the ancestors and just doing right by them and making sure that they did not die in vain and speaking for them since it's because of them, I'm here. Mm. So the ancestors, that would be, uh, how far back are you going? All the way to Africa or just to the ancestors here in, in America or? or 
I'd like to go all the way back because you know we're the original people, and I have a lot of pride in being the original people, especially when this community doesn't wants to you know tell me that I'm not anything. But you know, the first woman looked like this, probably a little bit darker. But you know, I, we're going all the way back. But but I also give a lot of honor to my to my parents, um, the most recent ancestors. So my mom, a living ancestor, and my father is one of my most recent ancestors. I lost him about this time last year, and they. They both utilize education to create um, generational change um, and, and, and disrupt generational cycles of poverty, of, of, of abuse, et cetera. And so I, I lived a very privileged life because of the way that they utilize um, education. And I want education to be the great equalizer. I want it to provide that opportunity for everybody. Um, but one of the things that we lost when we desegregated was having those black communities that looked out for black kids, black teachers, black doctors, black everybody um, that really showed us that love. And what we have now in a lot of our schools, we have diversity, but we don't really have an occlusion or anti-racism. So it's a hostile um, environment for a lot of our students. And it does not have that same, it's, it's missing that, that, that community piece. Um, that my parents grew up with. So anyway, they are my shining example. My dad was, um, he just got recognized uh, for being a black legend in Santa Clara County for his um, work as a public defender. So he always uh, looked out for the rights of black and brown people navigating the injustice system. I'm sure you know a little bit about that. Um, and then also <laughs> my mother um, was a manager in social services. So she did work with the juvenile justice system um, to make sure that people didn't discriminate against people in aging, uh, helped out with CalWORKs, et cetera. So both of them were all about you know social justice work. And so here I am doing social justice work in the schools. Very good. So uh, I want to. I was going to ask you about. You know, you said your your parents did some work. So mm -hmm. your, your your father was a public defender. Yes. And your mother was a social worker. She managed social workers, but yeah, she started off a social worker, and then she was a manager of social workers. So in Santa Clara County. Very good. Yeah. Uh, and so, did they? I mean, were they part of the struggle besides what they they're doing? Were they part of any type of struggles in the '60s or or anything like that? Yeah, my mom was in UC Berkeley. She was she was attending UC Berkeley in the 1960s. So she she was telling me there was times when there was bombs going off on campus. So she was in in the middle of all of that. It was a war zone. Um, it was with the Bla the Black Panthers, the the, the revolution, um, all of that. So absolutely. But I but she didn't tell me about a lot about that growing up. So I didn't and I I. I I think what they they thought was we're going to move you to a nice white neighborhood and um and you're going to be all right um but um uh it was traumatic i had a very traumatic experience in school and i, I loved learning and knowledge but um i received all of the insidious messages that school gives to black and brown children that they did not want me you know there that i was not the student they had in mind and i i, I didn't see myself in the curriculum i so for all of those reasons um I barely graduated high school. I had a really rough time in high school and internalized the messages that I was not capable. Um, All right, so I, want, I really want to talk about that a little bit because I because I want to get into how you got to where you are. So yeah. if it gets too uh, em emotional, just let me know. I don't know. Um, I'll just try. Like, they know too emotional. I'll be all right. I, I don't know if there's <laughs> the podcast. But I'm, I'm gonna bring all myself to your podcast today. And if there's some all tears, right. so be it. This, this work is is um, emotional work. Okay, so let's let's talk about your your time in high school. So they brought you to. Um, so your parents grew up in the '60s. Uh, they mm -hmm. were part of you know some serious bombings. Were, were your parents? Was your mother a Panther? Was she no, a Panther? she wasn't a Panther, but she knew oh, okay. she knew she knew the Panthers. Um, and she, she, she was um, Panther. She was Panther adjacent. Is that what you're yeah? Talking? She was Panther. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Proximity. Okay. Of the Panthers, absolutely. And then my okay. dad came out of Pine Bluff, Arkansas. So he's coming out of, the, out of the South. He's a short, dark skinned man and went in, went on to go to Stanford, became a lawyer. So both of them just, you ain't telling them nothing. They're gonna do what they're gonna do regardless of what you, who you think they are. Okay, yeah. very good, very good. They had that determination from coming from the South. Yeah. He moves over to to the West Coast, which mm -hmm. a little less, little less racist. Little less racist. It's <laughs> yeah, it's little. nicer out here. They smile when they stab you in the back. I don't think any. I don't think anybody put it better than Malcolm X when he said, uh, on the, "In the South, they're they're wolves. In the North, they're uh, they're foxes. Right? They out try to out out outsmart you and stuff." So yeah, I, yeah. I always like that. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about so 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 they bring you up. They they get together. Uh, and then they raise you. Is it just you or you have siblings? Well, I have a sister. I have an older sister. Yeah. You have an older sister. Two and a half years. 
two and a half years. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about your time in high school and what, what were these implicit messages that you were getting? And I want to know, did your sister feel the same way? Oh, my sister definitely felt the same way. Um, she very much felt it. I, I tried to ignore it because I grew up in a very white world. I received the messages that it was, there was, I didn't see anything good about being black. And so I really tried to blend in, assimilate, you know, um, play the part. And, uh, that didn't work. Apparently, people could still tell I was black. And uh, when I was in school, um, are you? <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> so um, I was like, oh, if I just, you know, I listen to all the music. I know I, I can speak like them. I can wear the outfits. They won't notice. But um, right around six, <laughs> we, right we know. We <laughs> know. <laughs> She's not really hood. She's not hood. <laughs> She's not. She's not. But I'm down. So the hood still accepts me. So it, we worked it out. Um, all right. <laughs> Listen, you gotta get to know me. Um, so yeah, right around sixth grade, like I had all these white friends, I, I hung out with all everybody. But right around sixth grade, when the sleepovers start happening, is when I'm not getting invitations to things. Right, that's when um, you know, I, I get adultified and I'm I'm scary black girl. So I'm starting to notice that shift um, within my social group, and then within the curriculum, um, I was looking at a bunch of of um, stories that I wrote in the sixth grade. And I'm always writing from a white male perspective. Like there's never a story where there's a little black girl or there's like a representation of me. I'm always like, it's all, I'm always writing from a little white boy perspective. And, and that, that's who had access to everything. Like there were, I had already received the message, little black girls don't get to do whatever they want, little white boys do. So I didn't see myself in the curriculum, even just like mainstream things, like when they're passing out images for us to do creative writing, there's never a little black girl, there's never anything I can relate to. Um, when we're studying when we're studying um, enslavement of my ancestors, um, the terms we're using are, we're calling them slaves. So even just the terminology is 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 white centered and just in, in derogatory. Um, we're saying that they were, uh, you know, um, brought here, not kidnapped. We're not talking about them being tortured, raped, um, all the horrible things that happened. We're never talking about the contributions uh, that enslavement brought this country, that our banks started off by ensuring our bodies, that the, the wealth in this country comes from 400 years of our free labor, including global wealth, et cetera. So I never learned about the inventions. And, and it, the contrast was when I got to college. So when I was in college and I was at, I was at the Anza College taking all these multicultural courses and then Howard University, um, where everything is like black centering instead of you know white centering, then I was really able to see everything that was missing from my high school education. Um, so, and and just like the way that uh, the white the white kids were favored, like I saw how the people that were really involved, like the cheerleaders, the the people in ASB, uh, the people the school leaders, they didn't come to class, they didn't they didn't have to do their work, and somehow their grades were fine. They were always the one chosen to be leaders. Just the hierarchy was very clear. And it was very clear that no matter what I did, I would not be on top because I did not fit the image of who was supposed to be on top. And so why bother? Why? I'm not going to even try to play a game that I know I'm not going to win. Screw this. Um, how many How many other black students or my, minority students 4%. were in that school? We were 4% black. We, had, uh, we did have maybe 12 or 15 percent um, uh, Latinx community. I mean, we, ha we had students of color, but it was it was overwhelmingly white. And regardless of how many students of color, the curriculum was overwhelmingly white. So I remember, for example, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, I think that was the book we were reading, but it, it says the N-word over 200 times in the book. And we're reading this out loud in, in my English class. And these are kids who say this word out on, on the playground. Like they say this in, the, in their real lives. And for me to have to come to class every day and hear that, I'm not participating in this book. I'm not reading this book. I'm not doing the assignments. You're lucky if I even show up to class because this is a hostile environment for me. So that's what I'm talking about. My school actually got, they got investigated for being racist and, and they were they were found guilty of, of, I mean, what school isn't racist, but at least they were actually like examined and then, you know, found guilty of being racist. So it was, it was a hostile environment. And I just, I didn't go to class because I don't want to be where I'm not wanted, right? I. It's real simple. <laughs> so, uh, so they were calling you guys that uh, on the playgrounds and stuff. Is that what you're saying? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I remember being. I have, I have a clear. And uh, my my twelfth grade year, I remember um, one of my white friends calling us the N word. It was not. <laughs> was he your friend? <laughs> my yeah. I mean, I use the term loosely, but like my I grew up with all white people. That was my world. You know what I mean? And so, um, and you get used to, I hate to say it, but you get used to black being talked about in a, in a derogatory, because we all internalize the anti-blackness. The anti like I remember 
with my my, uh, my blonde hair, blue eyed, white girlfriend, um, we're like six years old or seven playing Barbies. And we would separate our Barbies into a pile of white Barbies and a pile of black Barbies. I don't know why we did that. And then we would pick from the white Barbies first. And then- They we had would- black Barbies back then? and then and then we were picked from the from the black barbies and like it never dawned on me that i'm participating in anti-black right like that i'm also buying into all of this it was just the way it it was so yes i had friends who were racist and didn't understand that that wasn't acceptable or like i don't have to put up with that um so just let's just keep on with, with that particular frame of thinking here so karen uh, says, uh, there's definitely racism in schools. When I went to my guidance counselor's office mm-hmm. to uh, uh, f- wow. to look for college advice, wow. I was told I was just a ghetto hood rat, not worthy of her time, and, and I needed to get out of her office. I was in a National Honor Society, never got in trouble, first one of my family to graduate high school, and this was a black guidance counselor. So sad. Karen is a retired police officer who now works for DCF. She's been on a podcast and has her master's degree. So, so much for this, for the, for so much for this uh, guidance counselor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and but. that anti-blackness is with, but it's within all of us. We are all taught the same things, right? We're all shown the same images of scary black people, even if, if it doesn't serve you. I noticed anti-blackness in myself. It does not serve me. It doesn't serve my children. It's still there because I grew up in white racist America. So that's what it is. We all have we all have work to do on learning racism. I think the difference is with white folks is that it benefits them, their ignorance benefits them. That ignorance doesn't benefit me. It's deadly to me, right? So anti-blackness is deadly to me. The ignorance about racism is deadly to me and yet it's still within me. So there's a motivating factor for me to unlearn it. Whereas for white folks, you know, there's a motivating factor to, to not unlearn it. So. Mm. Mm. Do you think that people want to unlearn it? Which particularly people? white people. <laughs> The, the, uh, to particularly, and I'm speaking. I'm speaking in generalities. I mean, uh, you know, I have absolutely. some very, very We're close speaking friends. In generalities, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, overall, I don't believe white people want to unlearn it, and the reason why is because white people generally get what they want. White people generally get what they want. So if they wanted it, they get it. Karen says, I just taught a Waterbury uh, Board of Education class on Friday. The records show 85% of the teachers in Waterbury are white, while most of the students are in are black and Hispanic. That's across the nation is that we have more. I mean, 83% of our teachers are white and then more and more of our classrooms are, are black and brown. And all public schools are now minority, ma- ma- majority minority go. now. All public there schools. Are. Yes. Um, and so nothing in their white lives has prepared them to facilitate black and brown excellence. In fact, it's prepared them to do the opposite. And I think the average white teacher thinks that they're, um, that thinks that they're, they're neutral at, um, or, or good or, or neutral at worst. Um, but the reality is, is that a lot of those neutral teachers are actually the ones that think they're neutral are a lot are doing more harm than, than they think they are. So it's like, Everything about white supremacy tells white people you're an expert in all things. It says you you don't have anything to learn. It says that you're you're perfectly prepared to do whatever it is you're going to do. Go step into the role of leader. Leadership has always looked like you. And and then the the teaching profession in general is an arrogant profession in that in other professions you meet your client where they are. You you get to know your client. You spend time with them. But in the teaching profession, we very much say come come to where we are. Um, you need to get it together. What's wrong with you? Where we're the ones with the experts with the toolbox that went to that got all the education. We should figure out 50,000 different ways to reach kids. If we're not reaching the kids, we need to figure out another way. But a lot of us want to just have our curriculum that we've had for 50,000 years and do things the same way and never change. And we don't respect our students as clients the same way other professions do. So the arrogance of white supremacy plus the arrogance of the teaching profession has us where we are in education. I mean, there really is, we've normalized black and brown failure like we've normalized black and brown murder and black and brown death. And so when, we, when, our, when our white teachers consciously or unconsciously walk into our classrooms expecting black and brown failure, we know that that's the teacher expectations are the number one deter- determinant of how people are gonna perform. So you expect it, that, then, you, then you get it. And, and the cycle continues, right? We wanna throw up the achievement gap and, and never provide any context of the ways our black and brown kids have been disenfranchised and are continue to be educational disenfranchised for centuries, right? We don't want to talk about how 
enslaved people were, were killed for trying to read. We don't want to talk about how we've always had inferior schools, including including today, and have always been ways to manipulate the system to, to keep up segregation. Like we can't just segregate by race, so we're going to make it based on property taxes. White supremacy is all about, you know, maintaining and controlling the owning class, who has wealth, who, who doesn't. That determines who, who can buy property, not to mention like things like the GI Bill, which, which made it possible for, for white families to get property uh, that didn't make it possible for black and brown families and redlining. So yeah, I don't, I don't even know what the question was, but I know you asked me before <laughs> if I believe that white people um, want to unlearn this and I, and I don't. I believe that for most white people, it, it's, it benefits them greatly and it would be an identity crisis that they're not willing to, they're not willing to go through that. I wish that our lives mattered to them, but the fact that we have to have this whole movement of Black Lives Matter clearly states that it doesn't because we don't get, we're not upset when we're, when we're done. We expect Black people to die. Should we be expecting, okay, let, let, uh, just a lot of, uh, I want to kind of get my thoughts here. So, so your work, you, <laughs> your work is, is going to different schools, public schools, parochial schools, and, and speaking to them, educating teachers, who is it that you're actually targeting? I am educating school leaders. So I, I start with the school leaders. Um, that includes so principals, vice principals, all the teachers, everybody who sits in front of children is who I coach and do consulting work with. And you, you what, like do a faculty meeting, team meeting, uh, or do you assess the schools, do, do tests and see how racist they are? Are they racist? And what is, what is it? I don't really need to assess. I can <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can't just walk into a school and say, okay, this the, the, the majority of teachers here are white. They're all racist. You can't do that. Come on. You really it's not about them. They're, well, first of all, we have to define what racist means. And and for a lot of people, we automatically mean, we, we think it means that you're just, you're, you have malicious intent against black and brown people. And that's not what I'm saying when I say uh, racism. Just like I told you that I have anti-blackness within me, um, white people have, have, have had that within them. And for them, it translates as racism because they have the power to institutionalize these policies. So I can I can have anti-blackness with me, but I don't have the power to institutionalize it. And I don't have to because it's already institutionalized. So, my, so, my, so when I say that, um, I can walk into a white school and, 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 and can't say that they're racist. Yeah, I, I can. I can say that they're racist because they grew up in a white supremacist um, society. And the majority of white people did, have not done the work um, to unlearn racism. So it's, I'm not trying to say that they are, they're trying to actively hurt black and brown people. What I'm saying is that nothing has prepared them to facilitate black and brown excellence. That's what I'm saying. They grew up in a racist society so what else could what, you be? What else with the with the advent of of Black Lives Matter, obviously post George Floyd, do you think that there are some communities who are doing the work? Not re New Hampshire, I think is 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 classified as the whitest state in America, I think. I drove through that town. I, I was actually on vacation uh in, in a town in New Hampshire. And I, I don't know how many Black Lives Matters signs I saw. I'm like, there can't be that many black people here. <laughs> it can't be. But but there's signs that were in front of schools or in front of churches. Um so so everybody, some people are realizing this, recognizing this and actually doing the work. Would you agree to that? What is it to put a sign in front of your house? Is that the work? I mean I, well, I, I it's it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of it saying it's it's an acknowledgement of it. if if you if you're not around if you're not around and listen I'm just I'm just I'm not saying I'm not saying what well, let me just go out. What I'm saying is, is that it, it, yes, they're they're not. Maybe maybe they they don't have black people to really communicate with or um or to to talk to about X Y and Z, but but at least a, a sign means better than hey everything's okay. Or am I, I wrong? Or am I, I wrong? don't give props to performative allyship. And that's what I saw after George Floyd. It, it makes me mad that we're reactionary to racism. We need to be proactive about racism. It didn't go anywhere. It's not that after whatever happened to George and Brianna, all of a sudden, let's let's do something. This has been a problem. It, it, I, I've been mad since Emmett Till. I'm still mad about Emmett Till. I wasn't, I wasn't even alive for that. But I'm saying, like, I'm still mad about that. That was 50-whatever. And, and we want to be upset about something that happened in 2020. I was really, and I'm still mad, really mad about yeah, how all of a sudden neighborhoods turn to caring about black lives. No, you don't. And I wanna see 
a commitment. I don't want to see your sign. It's just like back when they were wearing, when black, white people were wearing the, the safety pin to show that they were like, oh, this is my little safety pin. You can trust me. Like, that doesn't mean I can trust you. Like, you don't get to just decide that you're my ally. You don't get to just decide that, like, I will let you know if I feel that you're my ally, if I feel safe around you, but you don't get to just decide that, oh, you feel safe around me and you want to suddenly jump on board. It's like racism is a white people problem. It's a white people problem. So I'm not going to applaud you when suddenly you want to get on board. It's like, I, I, I've been doing the work. I'm in these schools. You know what I mean? It, I, I'm, I'm doing the work. I want to see a commitment beyond your sign. I don't, I don't want performative allyship. What's, what's, what's the work that would qualify that there, that a community, a school, a school district uh, is doing the work? What, what would data, the data, data. Okay. So we would see that we wouldn't see these, these crazy disparities between these black and brown communities when it comes to that the, the, the test scores and the benchmarks and the, the achievement gap. That wouldn't exist. We wouldn't see a graduation rates the way they are. We our kids are being pushed out of school, and it's all of these different ways that that we set them up, including um, having you know the police presence in schools or which schools have a police presence and how um, the police um, are treating our kids. Our kids shouldn't have to fear being arrested going to school. They shouldn't be reported to the police. So there's all these ways. I mean, um, when you look at charter schools and and the way that they, um, some of these charter schools, and I, and I like some of the things you're doing, but, uh, but when you're like uh, no talking, uh, barely any recess, um, hurry up and eat your lunch faster, um, straight silent line to the right, um, tuck in your uniform. Uh, I, there was a school that I heard about, they blow the whistle at recess and everybody drops to the ground. Oh, just like where? Just like in prison, right? So it's like- What's the reason for that? What What's the whistle? What, what is that? signifying what, it, the whistle just makes everybody stop what they're doing so they so without recess they blow the whistle they stop what they're doing and they drop down just like they do on the yard in jail that's what i'm saying the state straight silent line to the right just like they do in jail they have the kids put their hands behind their back just like they do in jail like we wouldn't see those things and you only see those in certain schools i only see those in the black and brown schools i don't see those in the white schools those those things don't happen in the white schools and again the data if we still if you can tell me all day you're doing the work but if it still equates to the, the poverty and the unemployment rates and all the things that we see in, in black and brown communities as a result of going to your schools, then you're not doing the work. I don't care. I don't care about your sign. I don't care about your equity statement. I don't care about that's that's easy. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. What we know when we really study history is that black and brown kids, indigenous kids, uh, we have died seeking our education. We have, that's how important education is to us. So this whole idea, this whole this whole propaganda that we don't care about our education, that we don't, that we can't be educated, that we don't value these things, um, that is not, that is absolutely not true. We, we, we put our lives on the line seeking these things. I mean, we, we what was it, um, John Lewis, who's, who's, who's uh, bloody, a bloody Sunday just happened a couple weekends ago. He's, he's, he's being run over to, for the right to vote. So when our schools, when we don't see black and brown excellence in our schools, there's something wrong with our schools, not our kids. Hmm. Mm -mm. I'm running out of water. <laughs> <laughs> mm. What? So, so schools, districts find you, seek you out to to change. To I mean, how how does you get your message out that you're available for? My podcast um, that you love so much. That's one way. Um, listen, so. your podcast was. That's okay. right. I mean, you you can see what no, I, I like it though. I like it though. You can see what I bring to your channel. Like I, I this this is my life's work. This is my life's work. I'm not playing about it. Like I'm not up here just trying to be cute. Like I'm I'm here to do what God told me to do. I'm here to represent the ancestors. I take that very seriously. I'm not playing. And I need to know that at the end of my life, I did all I could to move this agenda because I wasn't supposed to make it. I wasn't supposed to make it. I was supposed to be another person caught up, you know, strung out on drugs, just 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 not just did not bloom, right? I would have internalized all those messages about who they told me I was, but I made it. And now that I made now, it, I want, I want everybody to know. When they told you who you were, that this is through the like you said, the killer mockingbird. What what were the images and messages that you were getting in high school that that told you that you couldn't make it? Well, first of and all, I agree, and I agree, yeah. and I agree with that. I let me just tell the story. So I, I, yeah. I remember a friend, a friend of mine. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll just go get some water there. Uh, so a friend of mine was, uh, was, um, uh, he was going to be in a Mark Twain play. I don't remember which one it was. Mark Twain. Um, I don't know anyone. One of the plays that Mark, Mark Twain, and, and this is in high school, and and 
I remember at that time it was like going to be a controversy if they're going to say the N word or not because mm -hmm. obviously that was in the play. Now every other previous years they were saying it, you know, whoever's mm -hmm. in the play. But now it's it's, I think it's the, the the big black character's name is Jim. So I think that you know this is what they were going to whatever play that is. I don't mm -hmm. know. So so I, I I didn't go to the play, but I remember just a lot of 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 the my my friend's father was was upset about this. Like how can you still be doing this, right? Mm -hmm. So progress comes a little bit i want to see him like see so, seem like i'm sounding like an, an apologist because i'm not i certainly agree with every statistic that you're saying um i don't know what my point was i just wanted to tell that story so <laughs> feel free feel free to tell whatever story you want to tell you ask me how do schools find me they find me on linkedin um, I have a Facebook group, a free Facebook group. I'm the anti-racist educator fighting white supremacy in schools. Um, and my podcast is generally how people find me. Also, I have some other resources where people, um, so I have a five steps to becoming an anti-racist educator. Um, it's primarily geared towards white educators and then an anti-racist toolkit. So all of those ways are how people find me. Absolutely. And my, my question was, how do you, um, what messages were you internalizing oh, yeah, as yeah. you're in high school? Okay. So Issa Rae, she is, um, the author of Insecure and uh, Awkward Black Girl. And so she's a she's a black artist. And one of the things she said is she wanted to create mirrors. She didn't see enough images of, of herself growing up. So she wanted to make sure that she created that. And she had this analogy about um, how monsters can't see themselves. And so uh, I, I didn't see myself. So for example, like Dracula, when Dracula looks in the mirror, the whole idea that when Dracula looks in the mirror, he can't, vampires aren't supposed to be able to see themselves or monsters aren't, be able to, aren't supposed to be able to see themselves. And so, it wasn't just what messages I received, but also the message I received by not seeing me, right? The fact that you're that, that we're talking about, you're, you're teaching me all the important people who contributed to the United States, who contributed to science, to math, et cetera, and it never looks like me, even though apparently my people worked for free. You know, apparently they did all this stuff for 400 years, but apparently none of it was of value. I mean, the list of what we've invented is insane. I mean, we did, we did the fire escape, the smoke detector, the fire extinguisher, the air conditioner, the refrigerator, the clothes dryer, the gas mask, the first open heart surgery. I mean, the list goes on and on. GPS, it goes on at the remote control. It goes on and on and on. How come we don't know that? How come when we talk about the industrial revolution, we don't talk about any of these things? We were inventing things left and right because our lives literally depended on it. And with, with far less resources and skill and all, I mean, it, it's miraculous. The things that we even been every elevators, the everyday things that people use all the time, the filament and the damn light bulb that people don't know that we created, the doorknob. I mean, it's, it's endless. You know what I'm saying? Like when I say it's countless, it's countless. And it makes me mad. I'm mad that people graduate. You know, I taught AP Gov, I taught seniors. They graduate not knowing any of this. You talk to black kids, what did you invent? Oh, rap music. Uh, they don't even know they invented rock and roll. Jazz is the only real American music. We invented that. Almost all, all the other music that people want to take, um, country has, has roots in, and then the blues, you know, like we, it's all us. It's us all the time. We invent so many dope things and people don't know it. I would have felt so good knowing that that came from me. The fractions came from the Egyptians. The Egyptians were African. Like uh, the, the, a lot of the things that we attribute from the Romans, the Romans got from the Egyptians. Like as a black student, if I had known that, the pride that I would have had in myself, right? When I'm in science class, now I feel like it's accessible to me because I know that we did the first successful open heart surgery. I know we invented the elevator. I know that the first woman millionaire in the country was Madam CJ Walker born two years after enslavement. Like we're the bomb. We are, we're so, 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 so dope. There's so much to be excited about, about teaching our history. And we don't get, we get nothing. We get nothing. So. When you're hyping all these other people and you have nothing to say about me, the only thing you have to say about me is that I was enslaved and you want to spend that long on it and, and, and make a mockery of it and get to say the N-word all throughout the English class. And I'm never, I'm never picked. I'm never recognized as a leader. I'm not valued. I'm not seen. Like I go to my guidance counselor. They don't talk to me about colleges either. Like it's, it's is, message after message after message after message. Is the, is the message still as strong today? And, oh. I, and I'm, not, I'm, not in, I'm not in schools, but I, every commercial, I don't know the last time I've seen a, a commercial that had two uh, white, white, white people in it. Every commercial is like a, like an interracial couple. Performative. 
we're doing we're there's so much of it but, but, that's, but that says but that says, sends the image though right we're talking about images and mirrors it's better than it's nothing it's better right. than nothing but it's still the easy answer because it doesn't change your attitude about me if you're my teacher and you don't like me these, these kids who are like my teacher doesn't like me that's legit your teacher doesn't like you and we're hearing that more and more when people forget to turn their microphones off on zoom there was a, a high school announcer who saw the his the high school team kneeling and called them a bunch of n-words like we're hearing more and more people's attitudes are being revealed because because of technology. So absolutely your teacher doesn't like you because you are black or brown. And so it doesn't matter that you're putting all these images in front of me that does not, that doesn't take away or negate the fact that our relationship is what it is. And if I know that you don't like me and you don't believe in me and you don't respect me and you're, and you're supposed to be my role model, like there's a whole thing about parents being local, local parents or, or I'm sorry, teachers being like the local parents. Like that's, that's my mom on campus. That's my dad on campus. You're supposed to be the one to believe in me, but you think that there's something inherently wrong with me because I'm not white. So I don't care that you have books, all these books, you know, full of people that look like me or all your walls. Like that's great. That's part of it. But that's the easy part. The hard part is changing in here and doing the work to recognize, oh, wow, that's a racist thought. I need, I need to put some work into unlearning that. That's the hard part. And that's the work. That's where, that's where the real change happens. That's what I want to see from white people. Is that, that what you, you is that what you focus on? Yeah. Well, when, what do you what do you what do you mean? Oh, when you go to these schools, do you focus on that that particular aspect, changing people's hearts, changing Just, their yes. minds, changing? I mean, my, okay. It is not an intellectual conversation because I feel like a lot of white folks want us want to stay here, and we need to get here. And especially if we're going to be educators, you are dealing with children. You need their their impasse. They feel you. You can you can say the right thing all you want, they will feel your energy. So the first part of my training is is on identity. And the reason why is because the average white person thinks they are an individual and they don't see themselves as you are part of white people. Like, and you represent whiteness, you represent everything whiteness represents. So when you stand in front of your classroom and you say, oh, children of color, you can do it. You can make it. If you just study hard and work hard, you can do it because I did it. And you don't take into account that you are white and you have white privilege and white supremacy working for you. There's a disconnect. That's an inauthentic conversation. Now, at, if I'm in your class, I don't trust you. And so when you're trying to teach me something and be like, oh, well, just trust me, I got you. Like, no, I don't trust you. I'm not gonna take risks. I'm not gonna raise my hand. I'm not doing any of those things because you're already telling me lies about something that is that is crucial to my existence. Like beyond the fact to know, beyond, beyond knowing you know, how to conjugate verbs or whatever, I need to understand how to navigate racism and white supremacy because I can be as educated as I am and be taken out because of white supremacy. So I start with identity. Most white teachers don't know that they're white. They don't understand that that has baggage. They, they can't, they, they, then they don't understand why they can't connect to their black and brown students. And it's because that part's missing where you don't, where you don't understand that your identity is a key factor. And the average white teacher doesn't wanna engage in these conversations of I'm white, you're of color, and that means something. But that's actually how you connect to your black and brown students is by keeping it real and being authentic like that. And when you're inauthentic, they're just, I mean, I'd be looking at you. If my kids are seven and nine and they would be looking at you crazy if you wanted to be like, oh, you can do it because I can do it, you know, because I'm white. Like they would be like, no, that's not true. So what I'm saying is that I start with identity because most teachers don't understand how their identity is impacting their perspective, the way that they shape their curriculum, the way that they relate to black and brown um, students and black and brown families, et cetera. Because too often what happens in our schools as well is we want to leave all the relationship building to black and brown staff to deal with black and brown families. While the white staff goes, well, I just can't relate to them. I just don't understand, you know, so go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll have, you know, Keisha come over and she could handle it. Um, no, white, white teachers need to build their capacity and learn how to relate to black and brown kids. And one of the ways you do black and brown communities, and one of the ways you do that is you keep it 100 about the fact that the world is racist and I'm white and, and the world treats me differently than it does black and brown communities. So do I start there? Yes, I do a lot around, a lot of hard work. How long, are, are there sessions? What, I mean, it can't be just be one four hour session no, or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a year, so what I do is, I do a year long um, consultation. So I'm working with, um, an elementary school in San Francisco. Um, there we're doing a year long commitment. We just did six months and we're doing another uh, year. Um, so it's very comprehensive. Um, I meet with them, geez, we do our professional development four hours a month, every month. And then I also do small group coaching. I also do uh, workshops for the parents. 
So it all depends. How, how, how much of this is, is being, is people wanting to be there or the school board doing it just to avoid being sued? I mean, it's, probably how, all of how it. it's all of okay. that. The thing is, is that people always say they want to be there because that's the right thing to say. Right. So everybody's going to say they want to be there, but it, it's similar to saying that you want to lose weight. Right. Like I want to, I want to lose weight. Right. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do the things. Right. Let me sign up with a personal trainer. And then sometimes they they follow through and sometimes they don't, right? And in that process too, there's resistance where like you're like, look, this is what you got to do to get there. But then they're they're still eating the junk food or you know doing the things that's not helping them. So it's it's the same thing. Like I I coach, right? And coaching a lot there is going to be resistance and people will say this is what they want, but then when they really see what it takes, that it's beyond just getting books that have images of, of multicultural people. It's beyond your Black Lives Matter poster. It's really you doing the work. Um, when they see that, like, it's not me, right? What I work should they do? What work should somebody do? If they, whether they take your class, they listen to this podcast, uh, they listen to your podcast, and they can get through it without being extremely... <laughs> I challenge what, you to listen to my I podcast. I, I challenge, yes. I, I second that challenge. <laughs> the, the podcast is really good. I'm not, it, it really is good. Well, what, um, what's good? Because you haven't said one good thing about it. What's good about my podcast? Well, I'm saying, I'm saying <laughs> no, I, I think that you're really raw, and you, the, the way that you approach things and the way that you're just kind of laying it out there is really really good i think Thank that people you. absolutely should tune into your podcast because they will get the, the listen you have really tamped it down for this show <laughs> but, but, but uh, i'm in a good mood yeah you're in a good mood <laughs> but but no but uh i think you really have your your passion your commitment really comes out in the show and you really talk about what's going on and you and you don't and you're not sparing anyone's feelings this is what people have done they have done to to us and you're angry about it and you want well, to do something about it. As somebody else said, I would rather hurt my white people's feelings than watch more of my black friends die. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't care. We're dying. We're dying. I, I just, that's, that's the, that's the parent. That's, that, that's the priority, right? Like, let's stop us from dying. I don't care about your feelings. I have a lot of feelings about the fact that we're dying. Anyway, um, what can they do? The work never stops. As far as what white folks, um, unlearning, white supremacy, the work never stops. So what I mean by that is that it will never just be one workshop, it will never be one podcast, it will never be one book. I don't care how many black friends you have and black kids you have. The Just like white supremacy is constantly working on us or working on people. And the thing about white folks, they can't see how white supremacy is constantly working on them, but it's constantly working. And we have all these systems in place where you don't have to do anything to make it work. We don't, we don't, white people don't have to put on hoods and, and, and march. Like they can just continue being, living their white lives and it will, it will just play in the background. So one of, one of the things white people need to understand is that you're never done um, and that you have to make it personal. That too often we want it, we want to um, make it external. We want it to be those white people over there. Like as soon as white people get a little bit woke, they want to, you know, demonize all the other white people. And and you got to constantly be doing doing this. And if you really even want to inspire other white people, change. You know, what I mean, be that example by 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 showing it. But you know, by just jumping down their throat. Because a lot of times we'll do that to keep from paying attention to ourselves, right? We want to get into somebody else's drama because we don't want to face our own. So so. White folks really need to, and the other thing that white folks do is they'll, they'll want to get into our movements and then take over, right? You want to go to some black lives, whatever, and I'm, I'm going to save and fix, and this is what we see a lot of times in the school, I'm going to save and fix the black kids. I'm going to save and fix the black community. I'm, I'm going to use my white power and privilege to then lead them to, to, to wherever they need to be. And that, again, is a white supremacist mentality, which is why it's like, there's so much work needs to be done just within yourself before you take it out into the streets. Because if you haven't done that work, you're just going to do more harm. You go in, you're all gung ho, and you go into BSU, and you're like, "I'm gonna head up BSU, and I'm gonna help out the black students." No, if, if you if you really saw us as as equals, and you would understand that we're capable of of leading ourselves, right? Like you you would listen to us and and see like how can I help, right? Like go into other thing that white people can do is go into black and brown spaces where you are not the white authority. So too often, um, white people nine. The studies I've seen is uh, most white people, um, their circle is 93% white, okay, 7% of color. So they don't spend enough time with us to begin with. And so then they're just receiving messages from the media, which we know are ridiculous. And then if they are in our company, a lot of times they're as the authority. So you're the white teacher in charge of the classroom of color. You're the white police officer in charge of the neighborhood of color. That still puts you in a position of white authority. That's not, you know, cool equal. So, so they need, or cool either. So they need to be in positions where they're either in, 
an area where we're peers or where they're, they're, we are their superior or we are having authority over them to disrupt the pattern that they're used to where it is the white person um, as a leader. I'm gonna tell this brief story. I started teaching at a new school. I taught um, AP Gov and I opened up that class by telling them that what I'm going to teach you is going to be very different from anything you've heard before. And you're gonna have a hard time, you may have a hard time receiving it because when you think of leadership, you think of a white man. That's what you're used to seeing. Like when you look at all of your bills and your wallet, you know, those are all white men. And here I am as a black woman, and now I'm running this class and I'm telling you a, a whole perspective, a side of history that you may not be familiar with, and these are seniors, um, because I'm a black woman. And that's real. You know, and and all kind of racist things played out in my classroom that would not have happened if I was a white man. So just that same candor that I have with my students in that moment, that's the same thing that white people need to have with their students in order to, to have that that reality. Cause that's because that's that's just what it is. So um so so let's talk about let's talk about um black internalization. Well, actually Lavanda had a had a comment here. I'm gonna get to that. Uh Lavana says, uh, guidance counselors at my high school were trash, all cap, all caps there. <laughs> if a black kid uh, wasn't a star athlete, they did not mm -hmm. get guidance on how to go to college. We had very little information mm -hmm. about scholarships, grants, et cetera, but the white students did and they were groomed for college. We weren't. Absolutely. Uh, That's by design. That yeah. Uh, Chris is, uh, Chris Casey saying, in my humble opinion, there is only uh -huh. one, uh, race, the human race. I believe God says so. That's sweet, Chris. Look, racism, race, the whole concept of race is not something that black people made up, Chris. It's something that I've had to live by because of, of, of white standards. And we can say all day that the only race is the human race, but until our policies um, and our, our schools reflect that, it, it doesn't, that, that's superficial. Um, if we really believe that, that's kind of like all lives matter. If we really believe that, then we would be devastated about the things that are happening to certain people uh, on this planet um, based on this, this false notion of race. And again, race is not something that black people made up. Uh, we didn't even call ourselves black, right? This whole idea of black came um, is, is in contrast to white. White people decided to be white, Italians, Polish, Russian, Jewish, they decided to be white so that they can have this whole thing called white supremacy and then create racial hierarchy. So um, please tell other white people that race doesn't exist and there's only one human race because I'm not sure that they know based on the way that uh, the indigenous people, black people, Latinx people and other people of color are being treated in this country. Let's talk about the black people who internalize this type of thing. Um, uh, I think, Le Le no, Karen was saying before that uh, her guidance counselor was trash. I, I, I'll tell a story about my guidance counselor too. I, he was actually my high my my um, when I played basketball year uh, freshman year. He was actually the, the assistant coach. I never seen this man after that to my senior year in May, <laughs> May of my senior year. We graduate in June, and he's asking me what my plans are. Wow. Where were you the first four years besides you coaching me, which I saw you every day, every time. Wow, we yeah, you were there every day for that. And just you were and every similar, <laughs> that's similar to what like Lavanda, I guess. I hope I said your name right. I just said about you, you only got you only got any counseling if you were an athlete, right? Like, so when you were a black athlete, you got a lot of attention, but as a black scholar, not so much. Yeah. So let's talk about the black people who, who internalize this, this type of thing, whether it's that guidance counselor, there are some uh, majority um, uh, black uh, administrations and sometimes their suspension rates are higher mm -hmm. than uh, or, or, and they, they disproportionately suspend black male students, black mm -hmm. female students. Um, so talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think it's similar to what we see with a lot of times, unfortunately, no offense, but with black police officers, it's that whole, like, I'm really trying what? to fit in. <laughs> I, I know, right? No. I knew at some point you got to come for me. I, I knew at some point. <laughs> well, and and, and I'm, I'm coming for the institutions. You know what I mean? Like, I'm an educator, right? I'm an education. Um, I'm coming for the institutions, but the similar, it, it's, it is, I think that, you know, um, I don't like assimilation. I don't like what I what I feel is selling out. But I also know that that has been a survival technique for for black people, black and brown people um, throughout history. I understand it. And so um, when you're in a system where where you're dependent on where you're dependent on um, going along with white supremacy to survive, then that's what you're going to see. And it's just like. Um, how black people have to work twice as hard to, to get half as far. It's like these black people are trying to overcompensate for their 
blackness and be like, I don't have an allegiance to black the black people. You don't have to worry about me, and I'll I'll prove it to you by having even higher, uh, you know, suspension rates or higher, you know, abuse whatever than than the average white person. So, and I also think that it is hard to be in certain fields and not compromise your values. And that's one of the reasons I left teaching is I didn't want to compromise my values. And I, I started to see that the that teaching is working exactly how the founders intended it to work. Um, it's failing black and brown kids and that's the name of the game. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not by coincidence that several black people have spoken up and said, I received crummy guidance counseling, right? Like there has there hasn't been one black person yet who has spoken up and said, you know, within this podcast, my counseling experience was great. That's not an accident. Um, our schools are functioning exactly how they, they were supposed to be. I don't remember which one of the framers said this, but um, they said that education was supposed to be only for the creme de creme of the white people. The white male owning class of them were only going to take the best of them, make them the, the the CEOs, and everybody else is going to be the workers. And they were just talking about, they weren't even talking about us. We weren't even included in that conversation. So it, the best of the best of the best of the white people are the ones that we're going to groom. Everybody else, you know, you're just supposed to be... Um, employed. So I always forget your question. I get the question on the screen so I can I can tie it back to whatever I, it is. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not that good of a typer, so I'll, it'll be all messed up and jumbled. You said and internalizing um, what happens. <laughs> in turn, yes, I, yes. So uh, it ha it happens in, 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 in various ways. So not just is it. And then the, you started with police officers. So go ahead. <laughs> I don't want to distract you. Go ahead. <laughs> it's not just the, the administrators um, who internalize it, but also you see it in our community. Um, what, what I think one of the, the biggest cores of what our schools do to black and brown people is it, it deters their self-belief and their self-esteem. And the reason why I say that is because I can graduate with my 5.0 and all my AP classes, but if I don't believe in myself, if I don't believe that I could actually go out and achieve and create change, then it doesn't matter, right? So it took me forever to believe that I could be an entrepreneur and that I could be a consultant and that I could, I could start my own business because I, I didn't, I didn't receive that message that I, that I could do that. I, I was always, even unfortunately, I hate to say it, but even at Howard University, um, they were grooming us to be employees. They were not grooming us to be business owners. They were not grooming us to be CEOs. They were, they were, they were grooming us to work for someone else, to go along, to get along, to follow directions, to and all of that. And so, um, that that piece about not believing in ourselves and not thinking that we can do it and, and then also not believing in each other, right? So I'm not gonna support black business. I'm not gonna support black people because I don't believe in black people. Uh, I've never seen anything good come from black people. Like all of that, you, you see it manifested in our in our community. Like I, I really am passionate also about the black people becoming entrepreneurs and for them to understand, especially with the technology that we have. I heard, I heard a study that our cell phones now have more um, technology than the compute the NASA computers that got us to the moon in the 60s. I mean, we have so much available to us, and we're sitting here trying to uh, be a, a round pay a brown shape and a square peg, and trying to assimilate and change our hair and change our ways of being to make white people feel comfortable. When really we could be starting jobs and then we're starting uh, businesses and creating opportunities for other people, which is what I've done with my business. And they say that not only are black women thriving as entrepreneurs, but um, you probably know this as, as well, but um, once we start, once women of color start making money, we end up spreading it to other um, communities of color, other impoverished people. So it really makes a difference. It's not just, you know, white folks giving back to white folks. Like we really, it really is a big deal. So all that to say is that um, the internalization, it, when, when we get hired for these jobs, a lot of times we perpetuate white supremacy, but even when we're just like on the streets in our low paying job, not living our best lives, it's still the same thing where that message of I'm not, I'm not worthy and my people aren't worthy um, is, is played out. Right. So we see the, a lot of that black on black, um, I don't want to say black on black violence. because That's some bullshit. But BS. I'm sorry. Cause there's plenty of white on white violence all the time. Um, but, but when we see black people, um, fighting or not getting along, that is a byproduct of, of white supremacy. We, we've been taught to hate ourselves and to hate each other. We've been taught to hate dark skin. We've been taught to hate broad noses. We've been taught to hate nappy hair. Um, we favor uh, lighter skin, lighter eyes, you know, good hair because of colonization. And that's, that's bred into us. So all of that is a problem um, when we perpetuate colorism, we perpetuate, you know, all of this ignorance, when we perpetuate all of that. And that's that's another part, that's another thing that happens as a result of our schools. Um, 
the average black kid isn't going to learn about all these inventions, isn't going to learn who we really are, all that we survived, that this country was built by us. They're, black, they're not going to learn about Black Wall Street or the Tuskegee experiment or, or all the things, the fact that we were put in zoos, like they're not going to learn, there's so much they're not going to learn, that we built Wall Street, that we built the White House. Like, And so how are you, how you going to feel about yourself if all you ever see is that you're in jail and that you're being arrested and you're being shot and that you come from people who were slaves, like, what messages, what, what about that is going to make me feel good? You know, like I'm so ugly. Should, we, should we have our own private schools? Uh, I would love for us to have our own schools. I think that I, I, that's the end goal for me. I mean, I'm doing this work because until we get there, it's still what it is where we have 83%, you know, white teachers uh, in these schools of color. And I still think those, those kids are, you know, need help too. Right. So, so that's why I'm doing the work that I do, but Absolutely, I think that, and and the thing is, is that like when you look at like the Asian community, like they have their own schools. Ain't nobody tripping about it. Like the Muslim communities have their own schools. Um, we expecting our, our our oppressor to to do the work to to be in a place to really serve our students. Like I said, like I'm not. I think white teachers want to get to the place of greatness, or they think that they're they're doing great. But I but I think that a lot of them are doing a lot more harm than they're aware of. So for example, studies are showing that black kids are thriving since the pandemic, since being at home, because they're in a place where they're they're valued and recognized and, and appreciated versus being in your classroom. Like, I'm not sure I wanna put my kids back in school. Like, so absolutely I think that it would benefit us. And I've seen I've seen some nice models. I mean, one of the one of the charter schools that like I, there was a lot of things I did not like about what they were doing as far as what looked like school to prison pipeline stuff, but but some of the rest of the curriculum, I mean, as far as the black history that they had all of their students learning, I was I was learning things just walking down their hallways and I study black history. Um, they, they sing the black national anthem every morning, you know, like that was really powerful for me because I'm very much triggered by the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm very much triggered by any of those uh, uh, national anthem or American national anthem songs. I know the history of those songs. I know the history of the Pledge of Allegiance. So for me to be at a school, we start with a black national anthem, like I felt, seen, I felt empowered, you know, I felt the ancestors, right? Rather than the murder of my ancestors, which is what I feel when we're doing the Pledge of Allegiance or when we're singing the, the national anthem. So um, yes, there's a way that, and, and just seeing black teachers, black leadership, like just seeing that, absolutely. I, I would love more um, black schools. I, I Unfortunately, I think that's the only way we're going to see what, what our students deserve. I would love for schools to get it together. But like I said, white people tend to get what they want. If they wanted education to change, they would. But I also know that, you know, after um, after enslavement ended and the, the we were quote unquote freed, uh, that's when lynching spiked. And that was because white people did not want to compete with us for jobs. And so I believe that that's 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 the heart of who white people to me have, have they have that attitude of scarcity. There's not enough, not enough land. There's not enough money. There's not enough jobs. And we have to secure it all for ourselves. And so we have to make sure that we're good. And so that being like a, 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 a subconscious, you know, value within their community, they're not going to share. Right. Like, really, there's enough for everybody. Like they, they could give us some other privileges. They would still be good. There's enough food for everybody. There's enough resource for everybody. But I believe that at their core, they don't believe that. And so they're going to make sure that at all costs we're good. And if there's something, it's just something extra for y'all, cool. But they're never going to value my children, my life, my community the way that that I do. They're just not. I, I would love for that to be different. I, please prove me wrong, white folks. Prove me wrong. Um, but until then, I'm not going to have you practicing or jeopardizing my children and the people I love. You know, while you're trying to prove me wrong. You know what I mean? Like, no. Karen is saying the governor of uh, Connecticut uh, just signed the Crown Act last week. This means we can now wear our hair anyway, any way we want in schools, in the workplace, and not get penalized. Any thoughts about this? Before you answer, I did a show about this. Make sure you guys go back in the archives. I talked to, and her name is escaping me right now, but she was, she did, uh, she anyway, she, we, we had a fantastic conversation uh, about this exact thing. Um, you know, this is probably last year I did it. So make sure you guys go back in the archives and listen to that episode. What, what did she um, say? You want to share a couple of things from that show? Oh yeah. Well, um, she said that, uh, you know, she was obviously in favor of the different crown acts uh, that were going on. I think you live in California, so mm -hmm. that's already been there in California. I think there's another one. I think recent. it's recent though. Well, I mean, I think New York has passed one. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, she she's an instructor at Temple University. Her name is escaping me. Uh, instructor at Temple University. And, you know, listen, she's in favor of it. Um, and, you know, she doesn't 
you know, we obviously believe that people should wear their hair that the way that they want. I'm, I'm in favor of that um, myself, even though I'm follically challenged. I, I do believe that my, my <laughs> or women should should be able to wear the hair they want. I, I, I have a daughter, and I, in, I'm always upset when she. Well, I don't want to embarrass her. So <laughs> when, she, when she's not when she's not when she's not being natural, she's gonna call me up in a minute. I know she is. <laughs> when, when she's not being natural, and when she when she wears her hair natural, I tell her all the time, listen, you look beautiful. I mean, the way that your hair grows out of your head is the way it should be. And I agree with you with the internalization that many people that we have had, we have to undo that. And that's kind of what I want to end the show on. Um, you know, we talk about what, what white people do, but there's a lot of internalization work that we have to do. This colorism thing, this hair thing that we have, this this fighting with ourselves. I think that this fighting with ourselves is really kind of in our DNA. It's something we have to get rid of. It's and we have to talk about DNA. No, it is not. Listen. Uh, okay, we could talk about that. We could talk about that. I, not now. I, I want I want you to come back. Okay. We've been on an, we've been on an hour. You gotta come back. You gotta come back. We gotta can I, just this one, I just want to say one thing about this question, which is when you don't have to have legislation to protect your hair the way it grows out of your head, that's privilege. It's ridiculous that we even have to have the Crown Act. They'll say that black women spend more money on their hair than they do their education. And it's because you can have all the education and then try to get a job and then they won't hire you because you have natural hair. So that's just another way that, and, and schools do this all the time. They discriminate in kids home all the time for their black hairstyles. Um, the army just passed something where they they made more hairstyles that were, that were um, kinder to African-American hair, et cetera. Um, as far as, I do believe we have work to do, I do. But I also feel like it's 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 just very difficult in a structure where there's no support. However, yes, the colorism stuff is absolute BS. Um, we really need to, to think about the way that our minds have been colonized, the way that we've been taught to hate ourselves, the way that we've been taught you know, what beauty is and, and what's aesthetically pleasing. A lot of the stereotypes that we're buying into about who we are, like we're allowing other people to tell us who we are instead of defining who we are for ourselves. Um, the toxic masculinity within the African-American culture is, is upsetting to me. The homophobia, the transphobia in the African-American community is, is upsetting to me. So there's a lot of things that we need to work on, um, absolutely. Um, but that doesn't negate the fact that racism and white supremacy is is standing on our throats and you know uh we're still dying so there you go gotcha. <laughs> so let's just try to end on a good note here well on a, on a lighter note anyway uh uh i don't follow this but you follow the royals uh you watched that interview with oprah winfrey and what's her name there Mar Megan, I, Megan. I didn't i didn't watch it because i didn't i didn't feel like there was a lot of new information I was going to learn. I, I, understand <laughs> I, I know how it goes uh, when you're black and you're. I gotta say, I, listen, I was shocked to hear that that the that the royals were racist. Oh my goodness, really? <laughs> <Were you? gasps> I can't believe that. that right? It's like that's where the races that we got in this country they came from. The you know the races over there. So um, I'm not surprised. I do want to say, if schools would like to reach out to me or people would like to get some coaching or um, you want to learn more about what I do, contact me at healingracisminschools at gmail.com. I have a 90 days to becoming an anti-racist school coaching package. And by the end of that 90 days, you'll, you won't be anti-racist school, but you'll have an anti-racist action plan for the upcoming school year. It'll be thorough, comprehensive, cumulative, all of that. So again, healingracisminschools at gmail with the S healing racism in schools at gmail.com. Also, uh, listen to my podcast, same name, healing racism in schools on, uh, Apple and, um, anchor. And I also get have you, my, get your popcorn. Make sure you're working out for that one. <laughs> it's, it's not when you just kind of sit there, you gotta be working out for that. It's, it's intense. I'm not going to lie. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I have intensity to me, but that the ancestors wouldn't have it any other way. And that's, I, well, that's who I answer to the ancestors and, uh, whoever mentioned God, I answer to God too. And God told me to do this work. And God told me to not censor myself. I kept asking God, like, yo, you don't want me to tone it down? God said, don't turn it down. So I'm doing God's work. That's what he wanted me to do. There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. Amen. Come back. Listen, <laughs> I, I definitely want to have you back. It's, it's been an hour. I, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. I appreciate you, oh. Captain Lawrence. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> All, right <you> take care. <laughs> All right. You guys take care. Have a good show. Uh, th thank you guys for coming on and uh, all your questions and comments and all that kind of stuff. We will see you guys next. Actually, we got a show this week. Messy entanglements this week. Messy entanglements. Messy entanglements this week. So what's that about? Uh, what's messy entanglements? Uh, we talk about it's kind of hood rat radish stuff. We oh, talk is about it? <laughs> no, no, no. It's not hood radish. It's uh. 
it's uh, we just talk about relationships. We talk about relationships and oh. how, to, how to make make things better. So it's you know how do we get ourselves in these crazy entanglements where you know you you're dating your baby's mama and you got a new girlfriend and you got a and you got a boyfriend on the side and you can't fit, you know it's just all kind of crazy stuff. It's so a lot. Try, it, well, yeah, it's a lot. But but I try to you know it, it's a fun show. I have a co-host that comes on for it. You should check. You, listen, you should come up there sometime. Sure, <laughs> I'll, I'll get a messy entanglement and then I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna find me one real quick. Yeah, find you find you a messy table to come on the show and talk all about it. So. There you go. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure. I appreciate you. Oh, listen, I appreciate you. Don't don't hang up now. People always hang up. Now. Okay, okay. <laughs> all right, guys. We'll see you guys uh, on Wednesday. Take care. Much love and peace. Bye. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, Make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Perform today.